Oh yeah. That's right, it's time for This Week in Mormons. I am Jeff Openshaw. Welcome to our show this week. Please join us at thisweekinmormons.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all those good places. If you like what you hear, send us an email, contact at thisweekinmormons.com, and tell us why you like it so much. And you could also leave a review wherever you get podcasts and send us a screenshot of that review. Why not? I care about all things that adore me. Anyway, I'm joined this week by my good friend, Jared Gillins. Hey, buddy. Hey. How you doing? Um, I'm doing all right. You know, it's funny, um, while you were like talking about like the contact information and stuff like that, uh, my brain was still in work mode, like for my, like my day time, full-time job. No, those are the words. So I was like going to pipe in and be like, but remember that the information for financial aid professionals website has been retired and that you should be using the knowledge center now. And I was like, wait a minute, that's a totally different thing. <laughs> what you just said means nothing to me, but okay. <laughs> I know. And that's like, I was like, why would I say that on this podcast? And I did say it on the podcast anyway. Just so tell us, you, you can make this, whole, make this whole podcast about your day job. Just tell us all about it and that'll be the whole show. I'm all right. Well, that. I'm an editor and I uh, yep. work on a, a contract through, uh, I, I, my, my employer is General Dynamics Information Technology yes. and I work on a contract with um, the Department of Federal Office of Federal Student Aid under the Department of Education. We make, well, actually, uh, I used to I used to explain it really easily by saying we make all the federal student aid websites like fafsa.gov, but we actually don't make the front outward facing websites anymore. We do most of, a lot more behind the scenes type stuff now uh, with uh, website programming and the back, we call it the back end where like receiving applications and processing the data and stuff like that. But I, I yeah, still that's do generally called stuff. the back end by everyone. Who, yes. Yes. Okay. I, I, I am not. It's, it's funny. Not I work for GD thing. IT. I am technically an IT professional, yet I know nothing about the, the programming and uh, business analyst side of the job. I am an editor. I, I edit words. Anyway, so yeah, I'm editing a guide right now. It's called the SCAPS, the Summary of Changes to the Application Processing System that goes out to financial aid professionals, oh uh, people who work at colleges in financial aid and help process you know things for the students. We, we put out a guide every year to tell them this is what's changed. And one of the things that changed is the, informa- the information for financial aid professionals website has been retired and they should now be using the Knowledge Center at the FSA website. I can't, I can't think of it. It's all, in, it's all in the guide. Just download the guide. I'll let you know when the SCAPS is in published and you can all download it from the Knowledge Center. Okay, thanks. Not from IFAP because people it's have- been retired. For while you, while anyone of you need still need to get student loans until President Biden, of course, makes that a thing of the past by making all forms of education completely free, you can support Jared's work. And Wasn't that a Bernie thing? I don't think that's a Biden thing. I I'm I don't. You sound like a Bernie well, bro I know, right now. I, I'm not a Bernie bro though. I'm really not. Yeah. I could be. But here you are advocating for the socialist propaganda of free education. So. Those monsters, those terrible Europeans. How could they? How could they do this to people? Yeah. It's the absolute. I don't know. I don't know either. It is. My freedoms, Jeff. My freedoms. In some ways, it's a complicated issue. Being from California makes me a little sad because I remember like for a long time, especially like the UC system was the envy of the country in many respects and even parts of the world because I mean, there's still great universities, of course, but these were publicly funded universities that were just stellar, top notch, and they were extremely affordable back in the day. Mm-hmm. And because the charter says goofy stuff, like they can't raise tuition. And this says this in a lot of universities, tuition doesn't get raised, but, but random university fees, quote unquote, 
are the sorts of things that get jacked up. And that's hit my state and others. And funding's always a difficult issue in education. But man, it must have been fun to be in the 60s and 70s and just like, yeah, you want to go to UCLA? Great. It's super affordable and it's a wonderful education. Good for you. I thought I thought maybe I was going to go to UCLA or Berkeley before my mission. I had no plans to go to BYU at all. I had no desire to be there. But uh, then I went on a mission and I lived in this silly world where I thought I'd come back from my mission and me and all my mission pals would be pals forever. And so I'd go to BYU to be with them so we could all be together. Mm-hmm. Right? That is, that's a good way to uh, you know set your educational plan by choosing your you know to go just to hang out with your. Buddies. I mean, it seemed appealing to be around the the churchiness of it all, and the good thing is a, mi- a mission can't. made me want that more. So I guess that's a good thing. Yeah. I, you know, I don't well, know. and I can't criticize because the really the reason I chose to go to BYU is because well, my dad went to BYU and my sisters went to BYU, and it's like you know everyone goes to BYU in my family, and then when I was time to like apply for schools at the end of my senior year of high school, I was just like I'll just apply to BYU, and I didn't apply anywhere else. I got into BYU and I was just like, well, I guess that's where I'm going. So, I mean, I have no regrets. I liked, I, I, I was, I am a student who was fortunate enough to have a good experience at BYU. I know there are others who don't, um, uh, but you know, so, but yeah, it was just funny. Cause it's like, I somehow got here just because I didn't think anywhere outside the idea that I should just go to school where everyone else in my family goes. So, yeah. See, that's how I wound up in community college right after high school. Um, my dad didn't go to college at all. And I, I think I could have at least gotten into a Cal state and potentially BYU. But in my mind, I was just like, Oh, whatever. And so I just went to community college and I didn't, you could have gone all. to UCSB and like, you know, just been right partied. there on the beach every day. Just, just, yeah, I could have partied hard. But the thing is Cal state Fullerton is right by my house. Like you can see the administration building from my mom's street. If you stand in the street and look West, you see it just looming about half a mile away. Um, but I didn't think, I just thought, I, I don't know. I just didn't care. I was in a weird place when I was, you know, 17, 18. So when I started college, I didn't, I was just like ditching class. I'd go sleep on couches at Institute. I was totally useless because I think I had this weird emotional thing where I felt like I didn't belong there and I should be at a better school. So I was going to like show them by not trying and someone would recognize that. You think dumb things when you're that age. We're sending these kids on. No, I'm sure you showed them. I'm sure there's like a yeah. plaque on the wall with your face on it. Yes. Like in the good place, like the Doug, the Doug Forsett <laughs> plaque, but it's like yes. the Jeff Openshaw exactly. plaque. And it's like, this is the guy who showed us. So like I had to make up for this because I, I wasted like a year. I totally wasted a year of my life. And then I decided to work full time for a year before going on. My, I didn't go on my mission until I was 20. So mission taught me a lot of good things. I was a go-getter, but when I came back and I was like, all right, college is legit. Let's do this thing. But I had to like fix my bad grades. So I hustled really hard and thankfully they, they did academic forgiveness. If you retake the exact same course, they'll replace the grade with the newer one. A lot of schools do that. First time I applied to BYU, I didn't even get to transfer over. Finally, I didn't get in. And I was like, I was crushed. I said, what is this? I'm doing a great job here. Let me in. I'm getting like all A's now, like A's across the board. I'm a great person. And I happened to be in Utah when this happened. So I went to, I just like went to the administration office at BYU and was like demanding answers. And I thought being in person might, might persuade them, but they were very nice and said, yeah, you still, they look at like the most recent X number of credits. And I still had some bad ones there straggling along. So I did like one more semester to get rid of all of, to lo- get all those just pushed off of the cliff of my, my records. And then I still got rejected again. And that time I was just like, what is this? 
Now I qualify. If you look at my most recent 30 credits or whatever, it's like a 4.2 GPA. There's nothing to keep well, me Well, Jeff, it turns out there's a lot of other people who want to go to BYU. Yes, and it wasn't just you. This is when I learned how I think how arbitrary BYU admissions is. So I called them up and, and just said, like, I just don't understand. Like, I get it before I understand. Got it. Okay, so I worked on that, fixed the issue. And I'm like, I'm good. I know it's very competitive, but like, I qualify to be a part of this university. And they looked my file up and said, yeah, you know what? You, uh, you should qualify for this, huh? And they said, just hang on. They put me on hold for like five minutes and came back and they just said like, yeah, okay, you're in. And so I said, great, thanks. And so that's how I got into BYU by pestering them. But I have to wonder, given the demand, like you mentioned, uh, if there are many people who get rejected for reasons and it's, if it is not worth it to just pester the admissions office, because you deserve to be there too, people. All right. Don't just let it be because some rich kid's dad from Layton can get in. No, you deserve to be there too. And then, and then have a thoroughly like eh, average time like I did. That's right. Enjoy BYU. That's right. You don't need to be Lori Laughlin's child to get into a good school. Oh, but oh, that we all could be. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that we could all be the children of Aunt Becky. I never even went to a football game at BYU, but I don't, I'm not much of a football Really? Player. You never went to a football game? Never went to a game. Oh. I, I almost wear it like a badge of honor now that I never went to a football game. That's interesting. Yeah, I didn't go often. I think I only went to like three. and you know, But it was generally either because my friends wanted to go and they had tickets, or uh, I think one of the times I went, I went with my dad. And like it, my dad really loved BYU football. So it was like, hey, let's go to a game. And I said, sure, dad, let's go. I'll get you some tickets. And so, yeah. So, I yeah, to me, College sports when I was in college was always more of like a social thing than an actual I'm into this sport. Well, I think that's what it is. And I had no social life. So that's that's basically why. Now, now, were many of the friends you went with were these people you met as a freshman? Did a lot of your freshman dorm friends carry over across your entire time? At yeah. BYU? No, I'm still good friends with a couple of my freshman roommates. And I, I actually didn't do the dorm thing. I, I um, unlike you, I did not... Um, you know, do school and work before mission. I actually, I, I graduated high school. I worked for the summer through the fall and then went to the MTC uh, a month after I turned 19 because back then missionaries, male missionaries uh, were eligible at 19. Uh, and so I didn't do any college. And then when I came back, I skipped the whole dorm thing because my sister told me, yeah. yeah, only weird return missionaries go stay in the dorms. And I was like, I don't want to be one of those guys. So I just found a place south of campus. I think that's fair. And, uh, two out of the three roommates that I had were like really cool guys that I love a lot. And I'm still good friends with. The other one was a weird weirdo who got married really quickly. And I have no idea what became of him. Yeah. I had kind of just like random roommates that were nice guys, but we were not all buddies so and it never that never really changed so i just kind of did my thing so anyway sorry for the fun tale about byu i like how we have this episode this intro to this episode has been a lot more background information on on me which i think is important for our audience just to know jared a little yes well they know my professional life they know about a little bit about my college career and you know uh what's your favorite movie you get one let's do desert island you get one movie though one oh gosh one movie to take to the desert island yeah uh, the first one that came to my head, and I don't know if this is actually it, but it is a wonderful movie, uh, Stranger Than Fiction. I, I love that That's movie. It's a great movie, but I'm surprised it's like your very, very top pick. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just the film. first one that popped in my head. I would put it in my top 10 for sure, but like, I mean, it's the only one that came to my mind. And now it's too late. I'm on Desert Island now, and all I have is a Blu-ray copy of uh, Stranger Than Fiction. And I don't even know. Do I have a Blu-ray player on the island? Sure. Like, what, I mean, everything's streaming nowadays, but sure. Sure, you can have a Blu-ray player. Okay. Thank you. 
and uh, and and I'll give you a seventy inch OLED television as well. You can have that too. And like Gilligan on a bike generating yeah. power, so that, that like, kind of that thing. Can exactly, watch. Okay. exactly. I mean, TVs nowadays are much more energy efficient. You should be able to pull it off. That's true. Energy Star sticker right there on the back. It, it will be fine. That's a good choice. I can see that. That's a good choice. It's it's a wonderful movie. I haven't seen it for a long time. I felt like Will Ferrell deserved an Oscar nomination for his performance in it. Sincerely, I did. Yeah, um, and, and truly everyone in that movie like did so well. Emma Thompson obviously always does a wonderful job, but I think that's probably my favorite thing Maggie Gyllenhaal has ever done. Yeah, I'm trying to think what she might have done that was better. What happened to Maggie I Gyllenhaal? I mean, The Dark Knight is wonderful, and she's good in that. No, but she's better. And Stranger Fiction is much more of a showcase for her acting, I think, than... I, I think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Good. This choice. has been This Week in Mormons. Thank you for listening. Just you kidding. can only have one album with you. Oh, gosh. Uh, I'm going to go super generic. I'm not generic, but like this is, I guess, really mainstream. But honestly, if I could only choose one album, it would probably be Abbey Road. Like False. I'm a big- False. No strings attached by NSYNC. Come on, Jared. This is an easy one. <laughs> I'm just a big Beatles fan. And out of all the Beatles albums, that's probably my favorite. So... Which is funny because just this morning I was sitting there and I heard in the distance my wife humming uh, the verses of She's So Heavy, which is... Yeah, I love that I just hear going... Uh, but my, my very favorite Beatles song, I, you know, it's hard to choose a favorite album of all time or a favorite movie of all time, but I can tell you my favorite Beatles song of all time is Here Comes the Sun. I love that. I love Beautiful that song. so much. Can you play it? Uh, I cannot, but I love listening to George play it. It's a great song. Well, Jared, I've enjoyed this. Next time you're back, we'll ask you about what your favorite foods are and um i'll be prepared whatever else we come up with your favorite podcast obviously this one no point asking and uh good times all around so in case anyone's curious my ideal movie on the desert island i'm not sure it exists but i want to believe it exists i has no one taken all three back to the future films since the the end of one is the beginning of two and the end of two is the beginning of three why has no one stitched them all together in one Take supercut one supercut. I know it's a little bit goofy because you still have you know title cards and you have credits and stuff like that in the beginning of each one. I want someone to make that, and then I would take that to my desert island. I want four. If you watched it like that, though, it would become like staggeringly apparent that uh, George McFly is suddenly not played by the same actor in the second movie. Yes, for which in which there was a lawsuit. That's right. That's why he doesn't appear in the third movie. He's not in the third movie. And in the second movie, they thought they'd try to get his likeness. And this was actually a landmark lawsuit for actors about having their likeness likeness used without their permission when they never contracted to do so uh, for another film. A little bit of trivia there for you. Well, everybody, so uh, plenty of other Latter-day Saint news other than BYU admissions and things this week. And we'll get into a good number of it. I'm goodness. I don't even know which one I want to start. With. I guess there's what I'll get into since we talked about BYU and entertainment. Uh, BYU TV is reportedly going to have LGBTQ characters uh, on the network. I think this is actually a very big deal uh, for BYU TV because obviously it's a network that is extremely particular about its standards, about what it portrays, you know, aligning itself with with church values and aiming for clean entertainment for everybody. And in all these things I'm saying right here, right? Church values, clean entertainment. None of that is to suggest that that would exclude a presence of LGBTQ people uh, on a show. So there's a Canadian series. This comes to us from the Georgia Strait, uh, which is a Vancouver paper. Uh, There's a Canadian series called Overlord and the Underwoods, which I believe is broadcast or will be broadcast on BYU TV. 
uh, and it's going to feature LGBTQ plus characters. And BYU TV is apparently they're working on it. They're okay. They're working on this. Obviously, I think they care about how that. Uh, they're going to care a lot about the exact depictions involved therein, of course. But uh, I think this is a a very big deal if they're going to have this broadcast. Well, what's interesting too, and I think what's potentially good about this is like obviously BYU TV as you know, the owner of their airtime is going to want to have a say and, you know, have a little bit of control over this, but this isn't, um, uh, you know, BYU students or BYU faculty or BYU, you know, TV executives writing these shows. It's a, it's, it's a Canadian production company and that they're working with and these Canadian writers that who may or may not be affiliated with the church. So I think it'll be interesting that, and, and good that it's not just going to be like a, here's a, kind of whitewashed BYU perspective on LGBTQ characters. Like it'll be a real like world perspective on, you know, and representation of people who are LGBTQ, but that's gone through, I guess the, um, what do they call it in like network television? The, the standards, it'll have gone through like the standards, uh, you know, Standard, standards uh, of practice. process, yeah. standards and practices review processes. Yeah. For, for uh, BYU TV. And so, I mean, so it still might get um, a little stripped down from what the original writers would have tried to present, but still, I think it's a step in the right direction. Yeah. And I like that you noted that, that um, when we watch a lot of BYU TV programming or any network program, it's easy to think that that's just all made by BYU TV. BYU TV is a network and they are essentially buying shows like any other network when they make them. If you watch Relative Race, which I still, I enjoy thoroughly. Uh, except for the fact they showed a uh, some B-roll the other day that said Indianapolis, and it was very clearly Cincinnati. Come on, BYU TV. Get it together. Sorry. Come on, Lensworks. Lensworks is the production company, and BYU TV carries it. But that's a case where obviously it's done in Utah. Um, just remember that when you're watching many of your favorite shows. They're not like Netflix hasn't made the show. Netflix is merely distributing the show and deals with it. Uh, but I think this is great. This is cool. I, I'm all for it. And uh, I think this falls in sort of in my opinion, the Richard Osler approach to success that we talk about when our dear friend Richard Osler will get flack as if he's like pushing some radical agenda. And it's going to be interesting to me to see what happens when this airs and how members of our church will react to such characters being included. Because at the end of the day, I think it's great. Include them. I have every every confidence that it will be portrayed in a way that is aligned with the church's values, of course. So what's to worry? Like being gay is not a sin in and of itself. So why not have Right. It? Especially like we're in a time now where there are some and very notably openly gay people at BYU. Um, like the first person I think of, and this is actually someone who's, who's quoted in Brother Osler's book, uh, Calvin Burke, who he's uh, got a really big presence on Twitter and he's, you know, he works, uh, I think he does a, he's a research assistant or a research fellow, whatever at the or a research assistant at the Maxwell Institute. Uh, and he's an openly gay BYU student, and he's just sort of like, to me, the face of that, but like he represents the fact that uh, there are many, many people you know who are openly gay at BYU. And so it's like, well, we can either ignore that these people exist, or we can represent them and say, we acknowledge that gay LGBTQ plus people exist in the world. Some of them go to our school. Some of them are members of our church. All of us have them as our neighbors and fellow, you know, community members. So it's, you know, it's not a matter of, oh, we're sacrificing our morals to show these people on TV. It's just saying we acknowledge that individuals exist who are of this ilk, who are, you know, 
you know, who, who are LGBTQ. So I was like, well, I don't see what's controversial about that, but like, that's my take. But inevitably it's going to happen. There's going to be people who think that, oh, like, of course. The, that the Lord's university is losing its way and it's being infiltrated by, and we've seen by, like the whole thing that going back, that. like, you know, like the BYU professors are not following the faith. You know, you've seen all those campaigns as well about like trying to make sure that the faith stays alive. But this stuff's going to happen. I'm just curious to see how it'll sure. play out and people will like, they're going to think but that people have been decrying be- that idea for like the last 60 years, you know, it goes back a while that people said, did you see what happened? You know, blah, blah, blah. This professor, so-and-so published this, like BYU has lost its way. Like, you know, this is in the sixties and you know, we're, so I don't know. We're part There's always going to be people who are grumbly about, you know, what's going on. One thing I really liked about this article is that they pointed out that this is sort of a follow on to other things that have uh, gone down at BYU TV that, you know, at one point, uh, I don't, I can, I can't remember if it was this production company or somebody pointed out, there's not really a whole lot of great, uh, I don't know. I've always ever seen this acronym in print. So I don't know if you're supposed to pronounce it or, or spell it out, but BIPOC or BIPOC black indigenous and people. Right, right. Somebody had pointed out that there wasn't really a lot of BIPOC. Is it, do you say BIPOC? Am I supposed to, I don't know, Jeff, tell me. I, I don't know. I'm not woke enough. I'm just going to spell it out. The black indigenous people of color were not well represented on BYU TV programming. And so they did just something. Just so you know, There's that's a couple one of those Google thing. Is it? How do you, here, do you pronounce you it? Or... Well, you keep reading and I'll, and I'll keep talking. So I, you know, so BYU TV actually responded positively to the criticism and they have a couple of programs now that are centered on the black experience in America and these shows have been well received and are, and are supposedly well done. I'm not familiar with them myself, but you know, like I, I just like that representation is happening, and I think representation is important. Like meaning, not everybody in America is a white middle class Mormon or middle aged Mormon like me. Uh, that there are other people, and so it's like it's not like when I watch TV, everyone has to look and be like me it's important to recognize that there are other people, there are black indigenous and people of color all throughout our communities and who are our neighbors or our friends or our family members, they should be on TV as well. And the same thing with LGBTQ plus people. It's like, why aren't they on TV as well? Because not everybody again is a white heterosexual cisgendered male like me. And so I don't know. I, I, I am for the idea of, of being representative of seeing yourself on TV and not everyone is myself. So let's let other people see themselves too. I, I don't know. What do you, I, this is, and this is a larger issue, but do you have anything to weigh in as far as this representation, right. why it's important or do you think it's not important or be, be controversial? Jeff. So what, what you're making, what you're making me think of right now is a little less this issue. I agree with you. Like when I have representation, it's fine. Like, right. We're not showing representation for everybody. We're not going to show like, well, what about Latter-day Saints that were also serial killers? We need to make sure they have their day. Like, well, they, it's fine. Well, we have that too. The, the, the murder among the Mormons. Yeah, I know. Netflix we, right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, you get what I'm saying. But when you, right. thinking about representation, I think of the past week in particular, I have seen, um, a, a fair amount of memes that went around that showed how many male speakers we had at general conference and then how many female speakers we had. This happens every, oh, you're every yeah. Almost yeah, you every don't even conference. need a meme to draw it out for you. It's, the answer was two, yeah. two female speakers. Uh, but I, I think that's an interesting area to explore because I, I don't, 
in my mind, I'm I'm sympathetic to that. I like having more female speakers just to, to balance it out because the argument will be like the church is like 52% female. And yet here we are out of total general conference. You have two female speakers and one gave a prayer. That's true. What if we were to run, I haven't done the number crunching, but what if we re- re- we recognize that speakers, as it says every time, are chosen from the general authorities and general officers of the church? Ergo, the speaker palette of general conference is not representative of the body of the church overall. It is merely representative of church leadership, which is a different thing because in that case, you have nine women. That's it. You have nine women to choose from and you have 15 plus however many 70 there actually are right now. And I haven't done the numbers for how many are actually in the combined general. Let's just round it up to 70. But we know we don't have two quorums of 70 anymore, but let's say, but let's say roughly, sure. w- roughly what, 85 then? Let's say 85. Maybe we'll be generous and just say 90 just to just to keep ourselves on our toes. So if we had 90- Well, and it's not just that because you also have the presiding bishopric that they can draw from. And also they draw from like the general- And the, and the young men's presidency. And, and Sunday school. And the general, is there a general Sunday school presidency yes. still? Yes. Yeah. There so. still is. So that's roughly approximately 96 men, right? And so how many male speakers did we have probably throughout the whole conference? I'm guessing, I don't know, five times, like what, 20 or something like that? At least, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. 20, let's say 23, if you divided that by 96, that's like, those speakers represented like 24% if we're rounding that up. Now, I'm not saying it's perfect for the women because obviously two divided by nine is, but two divided by nine is 22%. So in terms of how much they're representing of that that amount, that's actually relatively equitable. That we're- Oh, go ahead. But I'm not in saying that. I'm just saying it's one other way to look at the issue because I do think representation matters quite a bit. I I do want to see more women speaking. I like their perspectives. I just try to recognize that this isn't like they're just pulling people off the street from the membership of the church to give general conference talks. Like like it, well, it's a different discussion to say why don't we have more women in positions of authority at the general officer level of the church? That's a fair discussion to have. Sure, absolutely. But that's not the case right now. And so when you only have nine women to pull from for the whole thing, then what did you, if you want all nine women to speak every conference? I mean, I'd be okay with that, but I just, I don't know. I've, I've actually solved this problem. Okay. I, I can't believe this has never come up before because I, I've solved it. Um, you're welcome before you even know what the, <laughs> Thank the you. solution is. Thank you. Uh, so like you said, yeah, they, they always say speakers are drawn from the general authorities and general officers of the church. And I think that's good. You know, I love that we recognize that these women who serve in present, uh, the general primary presidency and young women presidency and Relief society presidency are officers of the church. Uh, you could just change that wording ever so slightly and say the general authorities and general leadership of the church. And then you can draw from the general relief society board, the general young women's board and the general primary board, which I think would give you, I don't even know how many women serve on those boards, but I am assuming that would give you at least five more women per organization. I don't even know. I could be sounding yes. completely ignorant right now. I don't know how many women serve on these boards. You're probably Googling it right now. Um, but yeah, like, well, like suddenly, I mean, like they, these, they just, they just had like, yeah, there was, there's, but yeah, I, I'm just saying like, the there's, there are boards that yeah. support these presidencies, much like the form of the 12 supports the first presidency, much like the president, you know, the body, the 70 supports the form of the 12. We have these bodies of women uh, who support the presidencies who are over and it, and it, what is, we don't call them auxiliaries anymore. What do we call them? 
just organizations. These, that's what we call these them. organizations. They support these general organizations. Uh, and these women, I'm sure, were chosen to serve on these boards because they're awesome and they have great things to say and great testimonies to share. Why can't they speak at general conference too? See, I solved it. Agreed. Just send that up then, to Black like, Jeff. I don't. But then, like, is it like, well, why don't we have stake presidents speak? See, I can, I can come right back at you. But stake presidents aren't the same level as a, a member of the General Release Society board. That you know that that, that, that would still be general leadership of the church, not stake le- level leadership of the church. I want it to be like the olden days when sometimes they would have like the assistant. Well, for one, when assistant to the quorum of the twelve pretty much existed, because I don't believe it even does anymore. That used to be a thing, and they would have that individual sometimes speak as well. That doesn't solve the male-female issue, but I just would it love doesn't. to get goofier with what? some of the coins. They should have like Lloyd Newell give a conference talk. They should have the the MoTab director give a conference talk. Let's just, let's mix this stuff up, man. Let's well, here's the other thing too. Uh, remember, and everybody was like so pleasantly surprised. Was I, was it the last general conference? Was it um, the youth October before this one? Yeah, where we had some youth speakers. They weren't general officers of the church, right? And that was fun. So we can actually ask anybody to speak. So why don't we get Jenny Jennifer Reeder? You know, you know, great Mormon his LDS historian. Uh, who's a female? She's wonderful. We have because her, we don't need her. We have, we have, we have President speak. Oaks. We have Oaks. We're good. We don't need these non-apostles to tell us about history. We've got Oaks. We're good. I'm just saying there are some great women who are doing great things in publishing and research and. Uh, you know, scholarship and, you know, faithful scholarship, you know, and you, they're just all sorts of women to draw from. And since we've seen from youth speakers that, you know, it's not required to be a general officer of the church to speak in general conference. Why not just invite more women who have, again, like testimonies to share and wonderful things to say? I don't know. All right. Well said. I solved it again. I double solved it, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, good job, Jared. I agree with you. Thank you for the for the fanfare. I felt like I was a You're baseball welcome. game. You're welcome. Um, so let's well, let's. I guess this is sort of a segue. You know, we were talking as we've been talking about representation. Uh, there was another article. This one came out of. Hang on, let me pull this up. This is from that that faithless elector Peggy Fletcher Stack. That's right. From the. Uh, sorry, I had these all like tabs organized and I have done a terrible job. Okay. So this is from the Trib, Salt Lake Tribune, Peggy Fletcher stack, the headline of the article, they make up most of the adult LDS membership. So why do they feel like outsiders? Because they're single. I love how like that whole headline is set up as like a smackdown because they're single. Boom. Mic drop. Yeah. That fanfare was for Peggy Fletcher stack. Oh, sorry. It It should be the dramatic music instead. I'm sorry. Hold on. All right. Yeah, there we go. Now we're on like a primetime soap. Good fade out. Um, so yeah, I mean, and so this is an article that draws on, I believe it was at Elder Gong who spoke to this point in in General Conference. That I want to say that. Uh, the majority Weak. of... <laughs> no, yes, it was. So here we go. There's a paragraph. More, the majority well, two of people Latter-day dropped Saints, that stat. Was, yeah. That's right. Two people did. But so she quotes Elder Gong. But Elder Gong was, uh, says, Elder Gong was the first. The majority of adult Latter-day Saints, both m- women and men, are, quote, unmarried, widowed, or divorced. That's the quote from Elder Gong, and it continues, this demographic pattern has been the case in the worldwide church since 1992 and in the church in the U.S. and Canada since 2019. 
So modern, the, 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 the traditional idealized nuclear family that came out of Leave it to Beaver in the 1950s, uh, or Ozzy and Harriet, or whatever you want to trace it to, the, the, these ideals that people have clung to uh, are not the actual norm in the church. You know, and we, we often hear people comparing, you know, the world to the church and in the world we have the family and blah, blah, blah. But you know, in the world they have, you know, the disintegration of the family and in the church it's going strong. But it's like, well, no, um, that's not actually the case. It hasn't been the case worldwide since 92. And it hasn't been the case uh, in our in the U.S. and Canada for the last two years. So I, I just, and it was a good article with a lot of great, uh, they drew on, she drew on a lot of good quotes from leadership outside of the U.S. who talked about this, experiencing this, and also members who are single, male, female, uh, either never married or divorced. She drew a lot of perspectives. And again, I think, you know, part of what makes this powerful is having representation of people talking about their experiences in a church that centers and emphasizes so much on the family uh, and the, the, integral importance of the family to building, you know, strong societies. And and here we are with uh, the majority of our members not being a part of that traditional family. And I don't know, I just, I think it's an important thing to talk about. And I think this stack did a good job uh, writing an article that kind of delves into it, but it's good also because it wasn't like the article didn't feel like sort of a, and here's what's to be said. It felt more to me like a conversation opener saying like, we should be talking about this more. And again, I think it's important not just for the sake of representation, but for the sake of recognizing, you know, what the church is like. And this came up, uh, actually, we had a a talking point from a couple of weeks ago that we, I guess we never got to on the podcast uh, about changes to the manual that uh, happened in the last couple of weeks. One of those changes was that single people who are serving in single wards and stakes can serve in leadership positions that could be a member of a bishopric or a member of a high council or uh, even in the stake presidency in a single stake. And that wasn't the case, even though that was the case for the standard family wards and stakes, you know, it was not unheard of to have uh, a male, a single male uh, or divorced member uh, being in a bishopric or in a stake presidency or the high council that that happens all the time in family stakes. But until just a couple weeks ago, it wasn't allowed uh, in single stakes. And so it's interesting, again, I think the church is sort of recognizing like, this is the real situation on the ground here. And if we're not drawing on our single members for leadership positions, we're missing out on a huge pool of people because they're now the majority. So anyway, I, these are my, those are sort of my ramblings. Do you have anything to add or any thoughts on that, Jeff? I, I agree with like so much of this. I think it's fascinating that that's been the, this has been the demographic ca- graphic case since the '90s for nearly 30 years abroad, and only as recently as 2019 for the rest of the church. And that's clearly something that concerns the you know the brethren and church leadership because it's just like even with knowing that, I haven't seen much on the programmatic level that we're doing other than talks and things to remind ourselves what to do. But like, what are we actually doing on, in terms of church structure and organization? to accommodate members that form the majority of our faith. And that's huge. And that's not to say we're, t- we're talking about representation. That's not to say the now minority that means married members, right, should not also be represented. But the church is driven by this, like like you said, the, the 1950s, the Eisenhowerian ideal that sort of has stretched its legs all the way into our day in terms of what the ideal church family kind of is supposed to be. 
And I know we don't preach that exactly, right? right? We have plenty of literature now from the church during general conference and elsewhere that stresses that family is a term that means a lot of different things to a lot of different groups. I mean, there's family in the sense of what's actually sealed in the temple, but family in terms of who you're living with day to day and what matters to you. Yeah, that's different things to different people. And I think the church recognizes that. I just hope that we can, uh, hope we can do more to accommodate these members because I I know it's a huge issue with them feeling out of place, you know, especially people who have never been married, who are all, you know, in their forties or later and they've never been married, especially single sisters, I think often feel the most left out in those situations. What are we doing for them? What are we doing for our divorcees? It's very easy for us to, to focus on like, well, divorce stinks, get back on the saddle and hopefully join the, the married masses once more. But like we can do a lot. And I know we have resources, but I hope we can take the time to make to make these groups not seem like the outsiders. That's the big revelation for me because they're not the outsiders. They right. are literally the majority of our faith. And we cannot Well, and the other issue to- too that comes up is like, you know, there are several people who, you know, in, you know, throughout the this article were quoted as being sort of like saying like, you know, I understand I'm and I'm paraphrasing, but basically they're saying I understand why we put such emphasis on families, but in the end like do we worship the family or do we worship Christ? Mm. <laughs> you know, mm. and, um, and and even the the, the article pulls a, another quote from Elder Gong, where it says, "Our standing before the Lord and in His church is not a matter of our marital status, but of our becoming faithful and valiant disciples of Jesus Christ." And I think that's so important. Like, obviously, the family is important. Obviously, the family we believe is an eternal model that we're trying to follow, uh, but. It's, but but we but this isn't the church of nuclear family of Latter-day Saints. This is the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, right? Uh, and there was a great little quote from Rosemary Card, too. I thought it was interesting that uh, she got pulled in because she's another, at least on Twitter, I think, a very visible uh, member of the church. And she's known for being a single woman member of the church. You know, a lot of the things that she puts out on Twitter are, are pulled as being representative of, of single women in the church. And I like one of her quotes, too. She says, Make church about Jesus. And if people want to meet other singles, create better activities for that. And I think that's a great way of summing up, you know, part this issue in a way is to say like, yeah, you know, it's important that we recognize that, oh, people are single. And, and this is a thing, especially in a church where we put so much emphasis on the family, but really church should be about Jesus. And then yeah. after we bring people to Christ through whatever means necessary or whatever means that they need, then we can also talk about, Hey, if you want to be married and if you want to follow this eternal pattern that we believe is important, let's do that too. And you know, what's funny is that this all builds upon a couple of weeks ago when it leaked out that the church had been, uh, had issued a survey gauging member, some members, thoughts on especially areas of, of singledom in the church, even down to things like YSA wards and YSA stakes and a lot of these areas. And you can see exactly where they're going with this. And I really think they're wondering, like, does the very existence of special singles units actually do more harm than good in terms of everyone feeling like essentially equal citizens within the church that we're all in this together? That's a whole other and the article, massive topic. Yeah. Well, the article addressed that too. And I thought it was interesting because I, I, I I'm not completely anti-singles units, I but I I have a lot of strong feelings about why I think they are they could be they can be detrimental to, to have these separate segregated sort of units for single people. Uh, but 
the article did a good job of presenting both sides of that. And some people were talking about how much they value and how important it was for their testimony and their relationship to the church and to God to have a singles ward where they felt that it was easier for them to foster their faith. While other people, you know, talked about, you know, not liking being separated out and segregated as singles. And so I think, you know, there's important arguments to be made on both sides of that. And I think it's important that along with representation, another good principle, I think that, you know, is prevalent these days that people are talking about is the need to listen to minority voices or just other voices, voices that aren't your own people who aren't in your situation, who don't think like you, it's important to listen to those voices and like, not just walk away with, well, here's what I think. And therefore that's what it is, you know? So I appreciated that. Yeah. Uh, I also think again, the, the stack gave a lot of voice to the, uh, people who, who don't have as much of a voice in our church. Yeah. I think the handbook change is interesting, allowing people to be in bishoprics and stake presidencies and everything within singles units. So I think it's great because in my mind, I think singles wards are pretty good as long as they don't, you know, devolve into a complete social mess, which they can at times. But I'm not super big on single stakes in general. I feel like that takes it a step. Like one thing I love, you and I were both, we were both in the singles systems in the DC area. And when both of us were in it, we were just integrated within the local stake. And I liked that quite a bit because you saw like there were guys in the singles ward who were called to the high council. I feel like even though we... DC has a very strong singles ward scene within the colonial wards. I still feel like they were reasonably integrated with the state because the state was savvy enough to like reach out to the single members to actually call up single sisters and ask them to help out with girls camp to have single men serving back then with, you know, whether it was scouting or stake young men's presidencies to not silo them in so much that it's just this totally separate world. And I think it benefited a lot from that because you could go to state conference oh, for sure. And yeah, you'd see your singles peers, but you were not like this unknown entity when they were just, I've seen other places where single boards drop into state conference and they're just like this separate group that no one knows in the stake very well. And I thought that was beneficial for the stake overall. I think there was better integration, but when you you break it all off and do your own stake, I don't know. I get I see how it gives you chances to serve, but I've never been totally convinced that it's. I think the members in non singles wards miss out a little bit. I think those stakes miss out from having more engagement from their single, uh, the single members that are in those wards. I and, agree, and likewise, uh, you know, they miss out by not interacting with the the married folk. Yeah, when they when they did go ahead and you know a few years ago create a single stake for the DC area and they took the colonial wards away out of the Mount Vernon stake and uh, renamed them and put them in a larger uh, regional sort of single stake. I, I had a hard time with it. I thought this is it felt to me like an act of segregation and in a way, like you said, to kind of lose some really valuable resources uh, in you know recognize that single people have a lot to contribute to a stake, you know, regardless of. If it's a family stake well, and, or and especially I know I know we're focusing on DC, but I think DC serves an is an interesting template. Because if you do this in Utah, okay, your, your localization is a lot smaller. You're not covering a huge geographic area. I get it. Here in DC, which has a lot of singles in the main scene, not just the two colonial wards, but around the area, there's a number of singles units. But to make them one stake for all of metropolitan Washington DC, you know, five million people for one stake, that's interesting to me because you'll have a singles ward like out in like, you know, like. Leesburg or somewhere out there and members up in Maryland and all over the place. And you're all part of one stake. And I guess you have to wonder, like, are you feeling more of an affinity for your fellow single members who live, you know, up in Rockville or Gaithersburg, Maryland, and you live down in Virginia, or are you feeling more of the affinity for the members who just like live in your area, married or single? 
And, and that's- yeah, I mean, and that was a problem when I was in the colonial ward, colonial second ward, um, I served on a regional activities committee and I can't remember what our official title was, but it was basically a regional activities committee that, that took like five different five, I think five or six different stakes and they all sent representatives. And I was one of the co-chairs of this committee and we were basically creating activities for all these singles to get together. And it was interesting because the people who lived in those more outlying stakes, like in, um, I mean, like Fredericksburg was one of those things. And then uh, the other one, Oakton was another one that just had, it was kind of more outlying and had a very small number of singles. They loved having those activities because they were more far out and had a harder time, like feeling like they had a group of singles to get together with and, you know, do things and to socialize and meet people at date, et cetera. But it was funny because then those, that, that core population that lived in the Mount Vernon stake. And also I would throw in the McLean stake as well. Those three wards, uh, they weren't nearly as interested in those activities because they were kind of like, eh, we've already got a good single scene here. Why would I go to yet another activity? Especially when, since we tried to rotate where those activities were held and nobody wanted to drive out to even to, you know, where is it you live? I can't remember. Oakton's Um, not even that far. But but like Woodbridge, like people didn't even want to drive we, we have yeah, it's like people with like, like people in the colonial second world were like, why would we drive to Woodbridge for activity? And like, people, it's not that far. Come on. <laughs> According to you, though, Jared, it is very, very far. But uh, of course, yeah, but it's not. And I, but, and yeah, I, I, I mean, totally there's there's a, there's an exclusive mentality a bit in the core DC nucleus, at least out here. But um, yeah, these are questions we don't have answers to. But I've yet to see. I know the the YSA stake scene and the single stake scene is different, you know, out in the Intermountain West, for example, it's, it's a lot mm-hmm. more, it's a lot closer together geographically. And so it's probably a bit of a different dynamic, but I'd love to hear from our listeners. If you've been in these stakes, what your thoughts have been about them? Like what you really think about single stakes? Did it serve you well? Does it not serve you well? Is, is it different in the Intermountain West versus it? There aren't that many single stakes outside of the Intermountain West, by the way, we've got like DC. And I think there's like one more that I'm aware. Of. There's one. In, yeah. There's, there's, there's one in, uh, especially in the, in the article, even point out outside of the United States, they're almost unheard of. There's one in like, there's like uh, one in Mexico, I think. And that's yeah, about it. So yeah. it's more of a U.S. and Canada thing, but yeah, most of them are centered in that, you know, the sort of the, the Mormon hub, the, the general Any, belt, if you will. Anyway, um, I, since we're speaking about representation a lot today, there is an interesting article that, I kind of came to this because LDS Living ran an article linking to it. And I was like, okay. Um, The article, though, is called Questions to Ask Yourself Before You Talk About Less Active Members. This has been published by the church. Okay, This is actually in the April issue of Liahona. I think this is a great thing to discuss in general. But for one, I think it's fascinating. This is actually in the headline in the Liahona. When we knew that a couple of years ago, the church removed the term less active from Preach My Gospel, for example. That, That term does not exist in church manuals, you're supposed to talk, call them returning members. So either that's changed or nobody cares that much about it. That's such an interesting term because what if they're not returning? I know it's not less active is more accurate, but it's potentially a little more loaded than returning. Right. And it feels more of like a negative term. So yeah, returning member is more euphemistic, but perhaps not true, right? It's more of the ideal we're striving for. So either way, call them what you will. I think really the tips here are pretty straightforward. I think it's funny. It's an indictment upon us that we need an article like this in Liahona because like, how do I refer to less active members? Well, first of all, we probably shouldn't like think about them as less active members in the first place, which is my, we should think about them as, you know, people. 
So the tip is like, remember that there are good people everywhere, whether they're active or less active members of the church or not members at all. Yes, this is good. I think this is wonderful language. And again, it's, it troubles me that we have to have this in the Liahona, which is, I hope people read it and take it to heart. But the fact that this exists means we're doing a pretty bad idea with that. And we're definitely carving ourselves into us and them, uh, you know, labels, which is, I think, sad. The other tips, though, keep an eye out for exclusionary questions, right? Like, um, for example, in young women's classes, we were often asked to share stories about how our lives were affected because our fathers held the priesthood. What if not everyone has the priesthood? So like, use common sense. If you are running an organization of youth, know who that your youth are and don't say dumb things that might make them feel excluded. Um, how do I respond when someone says they have less active family members? <laughs> I don't know. Put a put a scarlet letter A on them and tell them to march around town. <laughs> like, what else are you supposed to do? <laughs> like, love them and be nice to them, and just ask if you're you know are you empathetic toward eternal uncertainty? That one I think is worthwhile because some people don't know. They don't know based on their family structure whether it's a question of the faith of the eternities or simply that their their parents are divorced or whatever it may be. They don't know what their family is going to look like, right? No, um, I mean, I've even heard people say like, well, my parents are sealed, but I'm like, my dad isn't active. And so is the ceiling not good? Is exactly. my family not eternal? Like, does that, where does that put me? You know, and so they, there's a lot of questions out there that we don't have good answers for, that even our general authorities don't have good answers for, as was pointed out a couple of conferences ago with President Oaks, when he's like, I don't know, you know, when he was talking about that single sister who was worried about Oh, know, yeah, marrying, yeah. being a second wife in the eternity or yeah, whatever. Yeah. And he kind of, and he made a joke out of it a little bit. And we talked about that, I think, in our. That was the one where people were, but, yeah, some were kind of like, uh, I don't know if you yeah. made a joke about this. But the point is that the lesson from that is even like, you know, people who we look to as being the authorities who, you know, who have a more direct, direct line to God on some of these things, like even they say, like, I don't know, we, we don't really know how that works. And so, you know, eternal uncertainty, I think, is a real thing that we should be sensitive about because we don't have good answers yeah. to those questions. No, we don't. I like no, to, anyways, there I was one. Just good, but yeah. I'd say, I was just going to say, you could replace the words less active with anything. Questions to ask yourself before you talk about LGBTQ members. Questions to ask yourself before you talk about racial minority members in your area. Whatever questions to ask yourself before you talk about uh, unmarried members, right? Like these are like almost anything. Like when I was reading this article, it re- I was reminded of when I, when I first got back from a mission, I took a, an institute class in Orem. Uh, that was, a, it was supposed to be like sort of a, how to transition into being a real, you know, real world life, you know, after a real boy mission sort yeah. of thing. Real boy. I was, you know, I was like, I want to be a real boy. I don't want to be Elder Gillens anymore. I want to be a real boy. Um, but, uh, Anyway, so one of the things that we were talking about was like, you know, we talked about all sorts of things. And one of them we talked about was finances and the, the subject of bankruptcy came up and how we wanted to avoid it, you know, and, the, you know, this, and, uh, you know, so we we're talking about just like good, good ways of tracking your finances and avoiding debt and things like that. Anyway, but bankruptcy came up and then there was this kind of just tangent that went off in the class and the people started just like talking about bankruptcy and people, you know, who end up declaring bankruptcy and how terrible it is and this and that. Well, my parents had just declared bankruptcy like like a few weeks before, <laughs> a few months actually before that. And I remember just sitting there thinking like, wow, you guys hate my parents. And I was just, and I felt bad. I yeah. felt embarrassed because like all these people like bad mouthing bankruptcy. And so I think these principles apply. Yes, definitely to if we're talking about less active members or if we're talking about LGBTQ or BIPOC or BIPOC, whatever members or people in general. It's BIPOC. It's BIPOC. Like, by the it way. is BIPOC. Great. Um, 
but like it applies to like just about any topic. Like if you are on unfamiliar ground, like apply these principles and just assume that somebody in your class or your congregation or whoever you're speaking to or among has experienced the things that you are not as familiar with or that aren't like the norm for uh, our belief or for our demographics or whatever. And just assume that like, if I treat this topic wrong, someone's going to feel alienated or bad. And so it's like, these are great just questions to ask yourself and things to principles to follow just to exercise basic empathy and compassion for people who aren't you, which is what we're all supposed to be doing anyway. Yeah. And some of this is like communications 101. I mean, just never, and never assume your audience is this or that, or knows this or that, right? Like if I can't tell you how many lessons I've been in our sacrament meeting talks when a speaker or a teacher is just speaking doctrinally, but about assumptions, like, you know, like we all know these, like we all know the story of so-and-so we all know this, but like, does everyone in the in your class know that story? Are you confident that they do know that story? Like, take the time to assume no one knows anything and be sensitive to everyone else's needs. Because, you know, I've I've been in lessons where absolutely we've spoken like just as a it's been a given, and I've seen some people have been there like I don't like they've talked like what was that about? I don't understand it, and it makes people feel a little bit less than. And especially if someone is returning to church, if they don't know a lot of things, the last thing you want to make them do feel is like doctrinally insufficient because then they're going to feel right. goofy about like, Oh, I don't belong here. All yeah. these people know this and I don't. Yeah. yeah. Good yep. stuff. Yep. It's a time that we, again, think outside of ourselves and recognize that we are not all me or, you know, or whoever you, you yeah. know, insert your own name here. <laughs> Uh, let's, I, I'm going to go ahead and like, just do a really tenuous segue to continue to say, we're continuing to talk about representation and the non-homogeneity of the church, but to say that there was a really interesting article about how among Mormons, and if you, if you, if you cut the demographic off at 40 Mormons younger than 40, uh, it, by a slight majority voted for Biden over Trump. And that's super interesting. And this is not necessarily a new thing. Like we've seen political demographic shifts back and forth in the church before. Point, point of but order, in a church, real quick. What? It was a, it's a plurality. No one got a majority Plur- in that demographic. That's okay, Because there's all you. these wackos who voted libertarian. 10%, which is actually pretty, pretty surprising to me. That's way above the national average on the libertarian side. Anyway, Joe Jorgensen people, you do you. Continue, Jerry. Uh, yes. So anyway, younger, younger, this is from religionnews.com. This is Jenna Reese's website, but she said, you know, points out um, younger U.S. Mormons voted for Biden, but Trump performed well overall. So the, overall, if you look at the, everyone, if you just take a sample of every uh, U.S. member of the church, uh, more people still voted, a plurality still voted for Donald Trump. But if you look at the younger demographics, uh, it skewed more towards Biden. And it's interesting, and the, and the article points out, that we don't know if this is an actual trend where we're seeing a little shift more towards the center or the center left uh, among LDS people, or if this is more of a reaction towards just, just Trumpism in, in general. And that, you know, so the next election yeah. where we probably won't see Donald Trump as a candidate, we, it, it might, it might swing back the other uh-huh. way and see more of a, <laughs> wait, are you saying uh, like, Trump's not going to be a candidate or uh, we, it might. I'm not sold that he's not going to be. I'm not sold. He's not going to be a candidate. I'm not. I'm not sorry. I was just, I was just trying to the power of positive thinking, Jeff. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, the point is if, if Trump were not a candidate, we don't know if the, if the 
results would have been different. You know, again, right. we don't know if this is a swing, a general swing towards more cent- center or center left thinking among latter- younger Latter Day Saint members, or if this is just a reaction to the Trump, ca- uh, the four years of the Trump presidency and the Trump campaign. So, but it is, it's just an interesting Which has thing. Which has been to a, a singular it, era. Right, right. A singular is a great way to put it. But this, I think, goes well in hand uh, with the principles that President Oaks talked about on uh, on Sunday of General Conference, t- just pointing out that we are not a t- supposed to be a politically homogenous body in this church, that it's okay to be a party member of one party or another, or to vote for a member of a different party than what you would normally go. You know, that you can, if your principles are pushing you one way or another, you know, there's no right way to vote as a Latter-day Saint. And that, you know, obviously flies in the face of what Ezra Benson said, to paraphrase, you can't be a good faithful member of the church and be a Democrat. Uh, President Oaks pretty much shot that down. And, you know, and, and what we're seeing in this well, President, article. He also said out, we've, he also said famously, you know, the living prophet is more important than the dead prophet. So, right, as Jeff Benson did say that. So, um, all anyway, you awakened so, people, remember that. Right. So, I, don't know, I just like I just like an article like this that that reminds us again of this idea of representation. Not everybody thinks like you. Uh, if you're a very conservative or very Republican or whatever member of the church, other members of the church who who can be considered faithful, uh, testimony having, et cetera, et cetera vote differently than you sometimes and, and vice versa. Like, you know, there are people, a lot of these younger people obviously felt strongly against voting for Trump, but overall the uh, plurality of members of the church did vote for Donald Trump. So again, we weren't told to vote one way or another. We were allowed to vote according to our conscience and it takes all kinds uh, to make up the body of saints. So, you know, it's you know, just again, a good reminder that we are not one way or the other, that there's all sorts of us and, and, and the political leanings of, members of the church and the way they vote, it's going to swing back and forth based on the issues at the time, based on the candidates at the time, et cetera. The, the main thing I hope from this is all any like policy goals or, or no personal preferences. I just hope this is a legitimate swinging of the pendulum to something new. I just want to see more political plurality in the church in general. I think that's just good for us as a people. And oh, I sure. would, I would love for this to be the start of a permanent shift where we stop assuming everyone is a Republican and stop acting like it. I think that would just be great. And then it, it just dilutes the power of all of that. It takes it away from it happening over the pulpit because we just we recognize the heterogeneity within our ranks. I just think that'd be great overall, no matter who keeps winning elections or not. I just I, That's something I certainly hope for. I agree. Um, let's, let's stick with some Jana Reese here for a, a, wee, a wee moment, if we shall. So she also wrote another article this week, and the reaction to it on her Facebook page was actually kind of interesting. It was a little more uh, people were bothered by this one. I think it's because it was in some ways, I'll say, providing a critique of President Nelson's remarks, not necessarily criticizing President Nelson's remarks, but providing an, some analysis of them. Uh, the article reads, overcoming Mormon doubt is hard when you've never been given the tools. Now, this, of course, refers to President Nelson's remarks uh during the Sunday morning session of General Conference, which were great. They were about faith, but there were a couple of points that struck a nerve with some people. Uh, and we talked about this a little bit last week on our conference recap. If you haven't listened to that, please please go do that. That would be great. You'll be well-fed. Um, but you mentioned, like, you know, choose to believe, choose to stay faithful, study with a desire to believe rather than with hope you can find a flaw in the fabric of a prof- 
and then the fabric of a prophet's life or a discrepancy in the scriptures, stop increasing your doubts by rehearsing them with other doubters. That's good counsel, but I think there are many people who have sincerely sought truth because they have struggled with something they've come across and they've and they've tried to take that to faithful sources. But and I don't see a lot of people going out of their way to just commiserate with fellow doubters to feel better about it. Most people this is all anecdotal of course, but like most people I've seen that have struggled with staying in the church or had questions, it's they genuinely want to stay in the church. They're trying to say like help my unbelief in this case. Help me get there. And despite their best efforts, they don't necessarily uh, arrive at that. And that's not to say, there's, there's a lot of factors. I'm not in their shoes. I'm not going through what they're dealing with emotionally and intellectually and spiritually and all that. But um, I can understand why certain groups would take those words that President Nelson shared, which I think is a good challenge for us. But I can completely understand why some might take that and just say like, like well, what about me? Like I tried doing everything faithfully to overcome my doubts and I still couldn't bridge the gap. What what do you say that? So her whole point is like, do we have? Are we given the tools to question the church and to do so effectively? Are we given the tools to look into our history? We're getting there in some ways. Like we have saints and we have other things like that. But uh, that's her main argument. Like, do we have the tools in front of us to overcome doubt in the way the church wants us to explore those things? Well, and to me, and this is uh, towards the end of the article, but to me, I think the key sentence paragraph um, that I think. I think is an important point, but also probably is one of the things that rankled some of the people online who, who didn't react well to this article. Yeah. Uh, is she says president Nelson and other leaders. And I think she could have worded this better because it does come across as slightly snarky because anyway, it says president Nelson. Anyone who's the word leaders, magically. Yes. <laughs> right. President Nelson and other leaders want Latter-day Saint doubters to be able to magically know how to do something we've never taught believers how to do which is to understand we could be very wrong in what we are currently thinking about religion. And I think that probably, it's like, yeah, the magically feels snarky, but also that idea that we could be very wrong about something in our, in our religion, in our faith, in our belief. Um, I think, you know, that could, I could see how that could be seen as controversial or wrong to people. On the other hand, I could see, I think that's a very important point to make. And and we see and we believe in an ongoing restoration, right? And I think even President uh, or Elder Uchtdorf used He's that term. That. Yeah, and I think that was not, again, not this, I think that might have been an October conference or April of last year, but he used the term ongoing restoration to point out that sometimes we need better understandings, that our, our current understanding is incomplete. Uh, my favorite example of this, and I may have brought this up on the podcast before, uh, is Bruce R. McConkie uh, shortly after the 1978 revelation, you know, saying that uh, the priesthood was for all worthy members and basically it, removing the restriction on people of African descent, men of African descent, uh, being able to receive priesthood or, uh, the priesthood ordination and priesthood ordinances in the temple. Uh, after Shortly after that, he spoke at BYU. And, I, and again, I'm paraphrasing. I should have pulled up the quote, but he basically said, Anything that I've taught you or George Q. Cannon has taught you or Brigham Young has taught you about, you know, explaining why black people would never have the priesthood, he said, it's all wrong and forget it. And so even Bruce R. McConkie, who is not known for admitting <laughs> to be wrong about anything, um, he, you know, pointed out that there are things that we didn't understand correctly and that were being taught that were completely false. And so when you take that idea and apply it to now 
like, I don't know. I don't know what I believe or what I understand that I'm going to need to be corrected on uh, either in the near future or in the distant future. And the idea that, you know, she brings up is that we, you know, we need to understand that we could be very wrong in what we're currently thinking about religion. I think that is something that's important for us to be taught. And like she, and again, I don't like the snarky way in which you said it, but she's right that president Nelson and our other leaders aren't teaching us to think that way and to consider that possibility. And I think that is, that could be considered a disservice because we need to be ready to be told by our prophet or by who, you know, by a representative representative of the Lord that, Hey, we were wrong about this, or you were wrong about this. Think about it in a new way. And I, I mean, yeah, like, yeah. How, how can and, we? and I think she could have gone out of her way to, she could have framed that better as well uh, in that sense. Because I think if you're anyone reading this and you see her just saying like, we could be very wrong in what we're thinking about religion, anyone reading that without trying to take the time to provide context you just did might just say, oh, here's, she's, what do you mean we're wrong about religion? Is she saying the prophet's wrong? You know, like that, that, that's easily what happens from this. I think she'd be better off to spend a little bit of time explaining it. Um, we see little corrections like this all the time. Like another good example is, you know, the, the introduction to the Book of Mormon used to say that the Lamanites are the principal ancestors of the American Indians. And now it says are among the are among the ancestors of the American Indians. And so we make corrections based on when we find out that we understood something incorrectly, you know, so. Yeah, exactly. What one, uh, before we move off of this one, I like the paragraph preceding the one you just read though. This one's actually worthwhile. She says, what's tough for doubters is that the whole process of living comfortably with doubt means having humility. And I don't mean humility in the way Latter-day Saints typically define it, which is about not being prideful in our talents or life circumstances. I mean, humility about what we believe, which means being able to say about both our belief and our non-belief. Like she says, quote, you know, this is what I am thinking and feeling right now, but next year or even tomorrow that could evolve. And I, I appreciate those who take the time in our church, like in a testimony meeting to talk about what they believe and what they might say they know things. They might say, there's some things I believe. There's some things I hope for that I'm honestly not sure about. That can, that's still faith promoting. And I think we get so backed into these corners thinking you have to know everything and we're working towards absolute knowledge of everything. And anything short of that means you have a weak testimony, right? But like we need to be more comfortable and humble in that sense, have that level of humility. And I agree with her there that to just be able to be more comfortable being real about what we what we have. If you had somebody to come into your ward and they kind of gave a testimony like that, where they'd say, like, there's a lot of stuff I'm really not honestly not sure about. Like I want it to be true. I, I might, hopefully my testimony grows in that respect and it evolves, but I don't know how I feel about X, Y, and Z, but I do believe, and I believe in this church and I believe in the restored gospel. That would be one of those testimonies. Many people would be kind of like talking about after the meeting, be like, did you see what so-and-so said? And there would be, some of it would be met with derision, frankly. They would think that would that'd be an unfaithful testimony, but that is not necessarily the case. It doesn't have to be the case at all. And so that, that was a good reminder to me to not not follow the crowd into proclaiming what you know all the time yeah. and being real. And you and I both, uh, having been in the same ward, we have heard testimonies like that from yeah. the ward that we used to attend. And I personally found them very refreshing. I loved the honesty. I loved the, again, the humility, like uh, Janet Reese says, but and also just the honesty to say, here's where I am. And if you want to meet me where I am, as far as my testimony, my belief, here's where it is. And, and I think it takes great humility and uh, vulnerability, like a willingness to be vulnerable, to do something like that. And I felt more endeared to those people at, when I heard testimonies like that. And, and, and it helped me because like, a lot for a lot of that time, I was a gospel doctrine instructor or whatever. And I knew, like, oh, I need to teach not just to people who are like, I know it, it's good, it's all true. 
I also need to teach mm-hmm. to the people who are expressing their own doubts. And also it makes me reflective of like, well, what are the things that I, like, here's my testimony. I can believe, say I believe or this or know this, but what are my own things that I'm like, well, I don't know. And I, and I love a chance to be self-reflective like that because I think it's important to be honest with yourself as well. Yeah, man, I agree. We've had good, ch- good chats today about all kinds of stuff. Well, the there's best. so many articles we have not, we have not gotten to per se, but I'm going to do I'm a rapid fire off, and just get through. I'm going to do a few rapid fire ones because any one of these we name, I have to write up on the website. So Elder Anderson shared the greatest Facebook post he's probably ever shared um, just the other day. He talked about how years after general conference, his family plays a game that helps remind them of some of the important messages that were shared during general conference. His daughter prepares the game and shares it with their family. The game is basically Jeopardy. It's a Jeopardy board. Okay. His daughter has built this out of a PowerPoint in PowerPoint. I love the comment on Facebook, by the way, that says like, we don't have a program that runs this very well, which like, I don't know that there we've talked a lot about today about being sensitive to others. I guess I assume most people have access to Microsoft office to download a PowerPoint I mean, you could open it in Google Slides. You could probably do Open Office. I think you have options. So everyone, you could find a way to make this work regardless of what you have. But he provided a bit link, which I love. That means he's probably tracking how many clicks it gets. And um, full instructions on how to play the game. And it's basically one slide, the different points, 100 through 500 per category are hyperlinks that then take you to a slide with you know a, a quote that's a fill in the blank, any kind of thing like that. So... I just love that he shared this with us. I think it's great. I think it's awesome. He's got this family tradition and he thought, you know, the followers of Christ need, they just want, I just want to share with them this thing my family does. So here, have it. This is the one my daughter made. Enjoy. I think it's great. Well, here's the thing. Like, I know that seminary teachers all over the U.S. love to do like little Jeopardy type games like this after a uh, general conference. And often they're scrambling to make their own or maybe like their area director or, you know, co- state coordinator is like providing them. I'm sure uh, like, thousands of seminary teachers like breathed a sigh of relief uh, when Elder Anderson just <laughs> now put they that don't up have there to do any they, work. Didn't, they didn't have to make one their own. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Good on him. Uh, I'll throw another quick one out and Jared, you can do one if you want. Mormon gold coins, everybody. That's right. The search for Mormon gold. That makes me think of that old PBS show. Did you ever see the search for California's gold with Huel Hauser? No, the I actually thought of City Slickers 2, The Legend of Curly's Gold. Curly's gold. <laughs> Did we talk on the podcast how I watched City Slickers last fall randomly? It showed up on no. It showed up on Hulu, and I was like, "I haven't seen City Slickers for like twenty five years. I'm just gonna watch City Slickers while I'm doing other stuff. Why not?" And then it turns out the character Billy Crystal's character, when his mom calls him because he goes through like he's going through a midlife crisis kind of thing, right? Calls him and said, like says it's her birthday, and his birthday is my birthday, and in the movie he's turning forty. And he's going through a crisis on my birthday. I turned 40 this year. The whole thing, I was like, dude, this movie is like for me. This is a message. I am Billy Crystal's character in City Slickers, apparently. My life is a do-over. Time for you to go to a cattle drive. I guess so. Anyway, over there's a Layton coin show in Layton, Utah, soon to be recipient of a temple. And apparently they also have a coin show. And there are some old, the church, we, we made currency here and there during periods of our history. Most famous among them, the banknotes from the Kirtland Safety Society, for example. Uh, this one's dated 1849. So I'm assuming it was actually done in Utah because uh, we arrived there in 1847. So it's pretty cool. It's got the all-seeing eye. It says holiness to the Lord on one side. And then... Um, $20, which in 1849 means this was some serious cash, right? Back then. And today it's worth about $1.2 million. 
$1,000. So that's pretty cool. And it, it's going to be displayed for the first time in public. If you're uh, going to the Davis Conference Center in Layton, well, you can go and see it. And that's cool. Look at the currency. Why not? You should. It's like a, it's a little piece of history and it's a very valuable piece of history. I would sell it. So, yeah. Oh, totally. I, have so I wouldn't debts. feel the need to hang on to it. I'd be fine. So I'd many be, debts. I'd be fine. <laughs> I'd be fine. Yeah. What do you got, Jared? Uh, so I just thought this was this is another one that we can do a really quick fire on. But there was a great uh, little article in the Desert News. Uh, it, it, the headline was very clickbaity. It was what Elder Holland is studying each morning in 2021. One book may surprise you. And um, I will go ahead and just spoil the ending for you. He's he's uh, studying the Bible. So he, in addition Get to out. his Book of Mormon and Doctrine and Covenants study, which he you know is, he's keeping up with the Doctrine and Covenants for Come Follow Me, and he keeps up with the Book of Mormon because we've been counseled and, and advised since, as Jeff Benson especially, to make the Book of Mormon a, a daily part of our lives. Uh, he's also studying the Bible, but he's not studying the King James Version. He is studying the Oxford study edition of the, uh, it's the revised English. What is the official title of the, this version? It is the. You mean the one that's the revised English version. Yeah. So, which is, it's a very commonly used Bible, especially in Great Britain. Uh, but among Latter-day Saints, obviously not as commonly used. We, we generally stick to the KJV. And, and I, and I love, it talks a lot about his, uh, his relationship with uh, this Reverend Dr. Teal, who is a, uh, a, uh, not only uh, on the faculty or on the staff or whatever at, at Oxford University, but he, he's an Anglican priest and a very well-known, you know, well-respected scholar among Anglicans. And I guess this was a, a gift from him. So, uh, I, and I just and I just love that. But he's studying the Oxford Study Bible on the Revised English Version, and he's saying he's getting new insights from it because it has updated scholarship and updated translations and et cetera, et cetera. And I just like this not only because it shows um, that I love, you know, Kind of like I always will click on a video that shows two animals of different species being friends. I think like anytime yeah, there's a, yeah, like, yeah. you know, like this monkey befriended this baby goat. Like I will click on that. I, I don't know why, but I love that stuff. And I feel the same way about uh, an article about Elder Holland being friends with an Anglican priest. I don't know. I just love this idea that like, you know, our, our commonalities are more than what separates us. And these guys could be good buddies, even though they're of two very different faiths. Uh, anyway, but the other thing I like about it too is that we have this idea that like, no, we have to read the King James version. It's the best one. And I like seeing an apostle of the Lord who we believe, you know, represents the Lord in our Latter-day church saying, Hey, read this Bible too. It's got great insights. Read, you know, look at other translations. There are great things to be gained from other translations of the Bible. The King James version is great for many reasons. Uh, not the least of which that it, it meshes so well with what Joseph Smith's translation project of the Bible uh, but yeah, there's great things to be gotten out of the revised English version or the NRSV or so many other ones. So pick up a different Bible, see what you learn. All right. We're going to do two more. You can choose one. Okay. I'll choose one. What do you, what else you got? Okay. Oh man. Or I'll t- I can choose one while you, while you think. Okay. Um, okay. this one probably merits more discussion, but I think it's fascinating that apparently Utah is going to make men pay for women's pregnancy costs, which this could be a whole part of the show but they want to uh they want to put men under a financial obligation to pay for all the maternity costs if you are the father so i mean that's kind of cool yeah and the article is interesting too because it points out two sides of it like people this is sort of a pro-life 
a law that was striving to not be directly about abortion, but to provide sort of, uh, I guess, support to potentially single, you know, unmarried mothers who would otherwise maybe consider getting an abortion. The idea was, well, if there was more financial support, then that might help prevent abortions and help, you know, provide, uh, the, you know, what, what's needed for a mother to go ahead and go through with the birth. And then there was arguments on the other side for why this isn't the most effective way to do this. But yeah. I don't, I'm with you. I think it's an, a cool idea. And I think it's something worth considering outside of Utah. Apparently, Utah is the first state to do this. Yeah. And I, and I don't think it's a bad idea. And the funny thing is the criticism of it is primarily that like this doesn't do anything to alleviate the costs of actually like the, the problem that just giving birth the child. Is, just, is just too expensive. Like this does nothing for right. that, which is probably true, but I don't know that these have to be like totally like this is fine. This can be its own well, thing. This is, a separ- this, is, this is one issue to check off. And yes, sure. we do still need to address the other issues as well. I don't think this one is like replacing it. Uh, it might drive down. Um, the number of abortions from strictly unwanted pregnancies. I don't know, but we should mm-hmm. still visit the other issues as well. Why it's so expensive to have children, how we don't have good social safety nets in the United States in general and all those things. Sure. Have that discussion too. Yep. That's fine. Yep. Super, super interesting. Uh, I guess probably the best last thing to talk about out of the, everything we've got over here. And this is something that, that Jeff just barely found. Uh, and so I don't know if it happened yeah, it happened, I think, fairly recently. But the man who did the original artwork to design the CTR ring just passed away. No. And, uh, it says he was 80 years old. Okay, he passed away on March 31st. So it's it pretty recently, but still, not, it wasn't yesterday, but they just posted the article uh, today. But yeah, he was known for creating that iconic CTR ring with that nice curvy C that went, like, looped, looped way down, with the t, little T in the middle, little-ish T in the middle, and the R on the other side, again, with the long along left-hand side. Uh, how many of us grew up with an, a CTR ring on our, our finger at some point because they just handed them out and, you know, and it turned your finger green. Remember that? Did yeah, those, vaguely. Jeff? I do remember that <laughs> so, a little bit. Because they were made of like a really cheap brass kind of a thing. And so you had to like put clear nail polish on it. Otherwise it would turn your finger green because it would uh, corrode really quickly. Anyway, um, yeah, it was a, an iconic symbol of the church. One of our many little symbols that we've had and uh, he just passed away. So Rest in peace. Well, we should say his name, Joel Holbrook Izat, I Z A T T. That's a very interesting um, last name. Izat. Izat. I don't know. Izat. Izat. Whatever. Joel Izat. Thank you for creating this wonderful little thing. Now, now I don't know if we even hand out CTR rings anymore. Uh, I know that in the children and youth program, they are giving little rings that have an emblem of the temple on it. So I don't know if CTR. I think they still get the, the article says they. St- it says they still give them out, but they do have the do other. They? Yeah. Okay. Also, and then, no, obviously, a, you could still buy them at like Desert Book and places like yeah. that. So there's a great story linked here that says it's from 2001. Then the headline is "Putting T in CTR was the right choice." There was some debate apparently because T, you know, the is a preposition. Why would it merit being part of the initialism? So that's that's some hot reading for you right there, everybody. Please check that out. If you are right, so like when we're talking about the information for financial aid professionals website, there's not a second F in there for the four. Like no, we just not. make it IFAP. So same, you know. So I could see it just being CR, but I like CTR. I think that's better. Do you I notice how I brought it full around full circle to bring my? That's because my, my this is the most into this. It's the most full circle show of all time, my friend. That's how we are. <laughs> is this well, our outro music? Are you playing me off like at the? I'm at I'm the pl- yeah, this award show is over. 
Um, <laughs> thanks for listening, everybody. We appreciate you joining us here on This Week in Mormons. Oh, it went away. Bring it back. It's so finicky if I click stuff. Anyway, we're glad you came this week. We hope you'll come back again next week. Tell your friends. Tell everybody you know about this fantastic show. I kid you not, I had an old like young men's advisor or something from my old days when I was a youth who reached out to me and said like, your podcast is like pretty okay. I just kind of stumbled upon it. Nice enough to share pretty okay. it. This is, this is like Boomerville, people. If it's good enough for boomers, it's good enough for the millennials. It doesn't matter if you voted for Biden or Trump. We can all listen. Can this be the new tagline of the uh, of the podcast? We're pretty okay. About sums up everything we've done here for eleven <laughs> years. I think. Anyway, thanks for <laughs> thanks for uh, taking the time to tune in, everybody. We really appreciate your patronage, and of course, if you want to support us on Patreon, please do that. And uh, we'll talk to you soon, later, like in a week. So, Jared, thanks for being here, man. Appreciate it. Of course. Until then, be well, be holy, and be happy. <laughs> <laughs>